0: I wanted to quickly thank you for listening to our podcast I know you're about to get a lot of valuable information from it but I also wanted to hop in and share with you guys a free SOP which stands for standard operating procedure we use this SOP every single day in our agency to authentically grow and engage our audiences on social it is 1,000% free and I'd love for you to have it and use it in your biz as well. So just go to umaimarketingcom engage to go download. All right, cheers. Welcome everyone to the Umai Social Circle, where we talk about CPG marketing to help business owners and marketers alike grow. This is Karen and I'm Allison. We are the co-founders of Umai Marketing and today we have Jason Jones. He is an entrepreneur extraordinaire
1: and CEO of XO Protein A little flair
0: for you.
2: (laughs) Thanks for joining us, Jason.
1: I appreciate the invite. Good to see y'all.
2: Yeah, so a little bit of a background. Jason and I met while he was the president and co-founder of Vital Farms, my first real CPG job. Jason, can you tell us a little bit about co-founding Vital and what those early days looked like?
1: It's hard to believe it's been 11 years, I think, since uh, Matt and I, we started the company, so to be clear, Matt and Catherine had the farm, so they purchased the land in 07 and had chickens uh, that they had put out to pasture, quite literally, uh, with the idea of producing a better egg. In late 2008 or 2009, I met them, uh, heard about what they were doing, heard about these birds that were running around outdoors in South Austin, and that just sounded like something that the world needed. So I met Matt out at the farm, and just loved what they had started there. And uh, we we formed a company, and the the Meager Jones nest egg went into the company as as our working capital, really, for a while. And we set out to you know bring that really honest and authentic, very small farming method. You know, we, we wanted to how do you keep it small and true to the ethos of. Uh, of high, high animal welfare that centered on on the life that that bird got to enjoy. In contrast to factory farming, which we're probably all familiar with by now. But how do we do that and keep it honest, keep it really legitimate on the farm, but scale it up? And, you know, the early days were more humble than you would believe. You know, there was a lot of mistakes that we made, but we really figured out on the farm what it meant to raise a bird outside. It's very contrary to how uh, pretty much any other egg at the time was being produced and found some great partners in different parts of the country where it wasn't quite so hot and dry and that worked out well. We were able to find some good partners, uh, some good supplier farms up in the northwest Arkansas area. That's really the first place we went. And uh, climate worked out really great, and we found some uh, willing partners who would do things our way and uh, worked out a model that was really beneficial for them. Uh, Karen, you remember we, we were always talking about our stakeholder model and that that version of you know conscious capitalism that really does it's not just all about the profit and the bottom line and making the shareholders, you know wealthy. There's nothing wrong with any of that, but you know business can and should be so much more and I think we're all acclimated to that now especially in the natural food space and here in Austin where you know everybody is seems like uh, purpose-driven and mission-minded and you know we can go sell a lot of product and, and do well for ourselves but we really are making the world better and Anyhow, we tried really hard to embody that from the beginning of Vital, and uh, I give that really purpose backbone that that we always worked off of. I give that a lot of credit for the success that Vital has seen. In addition to the wonderful people we had, like yourself, who were part of that crew in the in the very beginning and then kind of in the, the middle bit, and now, Today in its current incarnation, there's, you know, great people walking around um, who are championing that very important message that, you know, we can do better and we ought not have to compromise the well-being of another sentient creature to get cheap food. And so it feels good to do that. And, and really, it's validating because customers are out there willing to buy these products and usually pay a little more for them. And we did that at, a, at the right time in the right place with a lot of the right people. Uh, like yourself, so it's been quite a run.
2: Giving me a like, given saying a lot of nice things, <laughs> uh, but so I mean, Vital Farms really did champion the term pasture raised. It was something that we always it was everybody else was cage free, they were free range. And what do you think Vital did so right? in making it such a huge explosion of a term and a way of raising animals.
1: Yeah, you know, that was a very conscious decision. I remember having a discussion with Matt very early on, you know, how are we gonna talk about our product? What is the label claim or the term that we're gonna use to talk about this, this stuff? You know, how the birds get to live truly every day. And, and uh, it was always pasture raised because that felt like a term that had not been adulterated yet you know, you gotta rewind, gosh, you know, 11, 12 years from where we sit today. the Concept of even grass-fed beef was not nearly as prominent and as part of the vernacular as it is today. So we, we needed a term that hadn't kind of been bastardized unfortunately by larger producers. Cage-free was a thing back then. And that's arguably, you know, a step up from being in a cage. Uh, but still, it's not a great way to live if you're a, a laying him. And then there's free range, which, conjures up a certain, I think, uh, a mental picture for most people until you really get educated on the matter and you realize that means you have access to the outdoors, but you may not be taking advantage of it or it's not really a nice lifestyle. So pasture raised was, uh, it was really, as of then, it was undefined. And we saw that as uh, we definitely needed to claim that term and be very proactive in defining it. So, you know, education was always Arguably, what we were doing, uh, we were marketing, but we were really educating. Not very sophisticated, but we were really honest about it. I mean, you know, we were always talking about transparency and authenticity. And somebody had a question about what did pasture raised mean, and we would tell them. And we got as specific as they would want to. You can't put all that stuff, you know, on your carton, but it needed to be somewhere for the consumer who's interested. And we would tell them whatever they wanted to know. We would even talk about some of the, you know, less. shiny parts of farming, you know, there's, you know, the chickens don't live forever, that kind of thing. Uh, What do you do with them when they get some age on them? And we would just be transparent. And I think we got a lot of credit for that. But, you know, it was much more about what does pasture raised mean than it was about Vital Farms, the brand in the early days. And, you know, people didn't really know about us yet. I think today we've advanced quite a bit, although there's still loads of room, you know, for people to to be buying better eggs. But, you know, when you're a new brand, you can do what you can to get your name out there. And we had a great logo and, you know, imagery and uh, stuff that you were doing on social Karen was really getting us out there in a big, big way. But, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of people, a lot of consumers out there. And because Vital Farms wasn't recognizable yet, we would feature that term pasture raise. And so, yeah, we definitely were more about what does pasture raising mean than, here's our cool brand list, let us tell you about ourselves. It was more, let's describe really this farming method. And that was at a time when everybody was hungry for more information. Michael Pollan had been writing his books for a while and we'd seen some documentaries, you know, that were telling us we needed to be more careful about the food choices we were making, how we were voting with those dollars and that kind of thing. And we were there to meet that education, not starved, but hungry consumer. And, you know, take them wherever they wanted to go And thankfully, I I think pasture-raised now stands up as a term. It has not been kind of greenwashed or homogenized in any way. I think people see that now. You'll see it on a carton of milk. You'll see it on butter and eggs, obviously. And I think people really do know now that basically that means the animal got to live like it was intended, you know, running around outdoors, at least during the day. So we were a part of that, I think. Not all of it, but I'm really proud of what we did.
0: Yeah, Sorry. No, you're good. So I wanted to ask, when when was Vital Farms, when did y'all find 2009. 2009. So when you guys were founding, wow, founded, when you founded Vital Farms, were you looking at other CPG brands that were also as transparent as y'all, or were y'all kind of carving that path?
1: Yeah, it's it's a great question. Uh, it was definitely the early days of the industry, and by this time, in you know, natural CPG. I think Vital is one of the more I think one of the pillar brands. I would say. Well, there wasn't a lot of this going on. I mean, you had Organic Valley, you had you know Neiman N- or Nyman Ranch. I've never actually known how to pronounce that. You got the sense that they were doing things right, and then there've been other brands like you know Maple Hill up in New York doing really amazing, truly. Grass fed and pasture raised dairy.
2: Mm, love um, their milk.
1: Oh yeah, the cheese is like so good. It's mm. it's like different from the cheese we grew up on. You know something's different about how that cow is living, which is a good thing. But it's a different taste profile. But yeah, there there weren't a whole lot of models, honestly. Really, we were focused. We were always very careful. And this is this can be a tough kind of a, a needle to thread if you're a natural or organic. Better for you food company. You need people, in certain cases, to understand kind of the dark side of what you are an alternative to. And in our case, it was our chickens don't live like this. They have it really good. And if you were a chicken, you'd want to be on a on a vital farms, on a vital farm, than you know, opposed to a big factory situation. But you, you don't want to lead with the negative, and you you want to have a positive message that talks about the good aspects of what you do and it's tricky. I mean, Karen, you remember this. We needed people to understand where most of their food was coming from and what that was like, and then present a better alternative without having kind of a downer message. And, you know, I think by that irreverence and a bit of the humor that we established, you know, I still remember stuff you were doing with hashtags and stuff, put an egg on it and stuff like that, that, you know, it kept it light, but also got people to think because. Consumers in the age that we're in, you know, with all of the information that we have and questions that get raised that maybe 10, 20 years ago just wouldn't happen. If you grew up eating out of a Campbell's soup can like I did, we were there to meet that. And um, yeah, now it's everywhere. I think you, uh, especially in our neighborhood or neck of the woods of the industry here with all of the better for you concepts and brands that are getting launched, there's, it's a, I don't know, a great time to, care about what's going into your body, what you're feeding your family and your kids and that kind of thing. So it's, uh, I think all of us are, say this a lot, you know, we're all doing the good work from the ground up, changing an industry for the better. We're not depending on some government agency to change a law or something. We're just putting better alternatives out there for people. And, and they go for them once they understand why, why it's worth it.
0: Yeah. And I
2: think defining the term setting really stringent standards and abiding by them and sharing them transparently i think that was such a huge portion of people's passion they, they believed it you know and i mean like little touches like the vital times in each carton it was just like even while you were growing and the brand was growing there was still little pieces that made it seem really like small farm and i think that appeals to a lot of people while being honest too because the eggs do come from a lot of small farms. So it's very great. cool. I did have a quick question about like logistics and I off of marketing, but the breakage, the refrigeration, looking back on it now with all the brands that we've worked with, I'm just like, how on earth did y'all handle that? And what would be your best advice to an entrepreneur that has glass jars and they experience a lot of breakage and challenges logistically?
1: Yeah, man, it turns out when you take an egg and ship it across the country, lots of lots of stuff can happen, huh? And, you know, we would have kind of bouts of this where a truck driver just wasn't careful, or maybe the road was icy because they were, you know, coming through the Ozarks or something. And as it turns out, eggs are fragile. You know, the first thing that you've got to do is to plan for it. You know, you don't want to be building your, you know, starting your brand, coming up with your unit economics and telling a buyer, you know, here's our pricing and you know, this is what we'll give you in trade spend. And you you can't forget about spoilage of any type, whether it's something gets broken in transit or it gets hung up and, or it's not moving and it, you know, goes out of code dating while it's sitting in a warehouse somewhere. You need to plan pretty conservatively, especially when you're small, because you just don't have the scale to smooth out bumps like that. And they will come. So, I guess the first thing I would say that may sound somewhat intelligent anyway is is just you know plan for it so that your model accounts for you know a healthy degree of that especially in the early days because issues are going to come and you know I've worked with companies like you I've done a lot of consultative stuff and mentoring younger entrepreneurs or just growth stage companies and there's some unfortunate stories where you know you know what it costs you so you come up with what the economics you think are going to be and this is how much cash you're going to need to keep it all going. And you didn't plan for the $80,000 chargeback you're going to get from a big grocery customer if any number of things go south. And, you know, there's kind of the front end and the consumer story and the branding and all that. And then there's the reality of you can't run out of cash. And so planning for that well ahead of when you're going to need to get through that batch of broken eggs or expired product or you know your co-man put your labels on upside down and it's just going to take three weeks to get it redone stuff happens and and that's just the struggle of needing to have good uh, partners and be able to con- kind of control your destiny a little bit it's just harder to do when you're small and in the early stages so i don't know the first thing you should do is plan for things to be a little rougher than than you think they should
2: Cool. Well, segueing out of Vital and into your consulting work that you mm-hmm. just mentioned, what were like some of the biggest pain points of the entrepreneurs that you worked with? Like, what would you just hear constantly?
1: Well, you know, entrepreneurs, especially kind of the more, I'd say, visionary types, they're their own breed of cat. And, you know, I think it's really hard for anyone to be a super well rounded, I guess you'd say leader, you know, where you come up with a concept, you can breathe life into this thing. You can sell the shit out of it, you know, whether it's to a consumer or a buyer or people online, and then also get all of those nuts and bolts we were just talking about where the rubber meets the road, much less the economics of the exercise and you're out raising money and trying not to run out of it. Keep your investors happy, whether it's your uncle or, you know, some equity firm. So there's a lot of disciplines going on there in this exercise. And I guess one thing I've come up against more than once is just a, you know, a founder who births something into the world and it definitely has its place and, and they have some level of momentum, but it can be hard for visionary types to get out of their own way. If I'll say that nicely. And, uh, you know, either take advice about, hey, I can see kind of around this corner because I've been to this movie before. I think you should prioritize this and maybe put a little more, focus on, I don't know, getting a good accounting system underneath you or maybe getting a better co-manufacturer because this one's totally killing you. It's it just reads like a book, even though it may not be that clear to you. You know, it's rare is the visionary who is also a great operator. And so that's advice I would often end up, you know, hearing myself say to somebody is like, hey, it's time to go get maybe somebody who really, really has moved a lot of stuff around the country before and not, you know, just somebody, a friend or relative who you've put in this position. Or an expert in accounting who actually understands CPG and trade spin and the games that UNFI will play with you and how they extort you this way and that, instead of the guy who's done your dad's taxes for the last 20 years. Like, yeah, he's an accountant, but he doesn't understand this industry. So I guess knowing when to bring in seasoned help in certain certain disciplines and from the industry that's that's something that i think it probably takes every everybody a while to learn but the quicker you do the the quicker you like i said can get out of your own way and you know kind of start delegating to people who actually understand a certain function better than you because it's quite enough to be a visionary and put something new out in the world
0: have you seen a lot of great entrepreneurs with a lot of great product fail because of that in your time as a
1: consultant yeah fail i guess there's a spectrum of that i mean i've seen a lot where they should be much further down the road than they are by the way i'm not trying to come off as some expert who would do everything right or Mm -hmm. knows all the right moves i sure don't but um, (laughs) nobody but i've seen businesses fold for sure because Mm -hmm. you just run out of cash because you you weren't planning well or You know you weren't focused another thing that happens a lot is being so eager to launch your next product line when you have way more room to just go do what you're already doing much more deeply and you know those are things you can get kind of a sixth sense for just being in the industry a while but yeah i mean unless you have a a billionaire backer who just keeps writing checks and i've actually seen that happen before too which is you could argue equally unfortunate because um, you know sometimes things just need to run their course and get cleared out of the way but <laughs> it usually does come down to the economics one way or the other and it's a ruthless game you know I, I don't think it's quite as tough as say opening a restaurant where i guess what i've heard is 90% of those don't hang around but um, yeah it's, it's tough like any industry there's there's lots to rope together and get right and and you have to be in a favorable set of conditions i won't call it luck but you could look at vital and we put this out in the market at perfect time. We were really just ahead of the crest of this wave of awareness and desire for something better. We were also in Austin. So right up the road, you have whole foods and then an hour, the other way you've got H E B and you know, you're in Texas and there's a, I was talking about this earlier today. There's such a pride for whatever it is that makes Texas, Texas. And you know, I was talking with, a, with somebody earlier who spent a lot of time abroad in the first part of their career, as did I. And we, you know, we were just saying, you could be in a bar in Roppongi, you know, in Tokyo. And somebody hears you from Texas and you've got something to talk about. Because that's like its own brand. And even within that, Austin, as we all know. and So um, not sure where I was going with that. But
2: So you're you know, saying if you have a CPG brand and you don't live in Austin, you better get down here quick.
1: One way of looking at it. Austin we're not going to mention that that city outside of uh denver that shall not be named but
0: yeah no. <laughs> oh, so i went to school
1: <laughs> you were smart it's a nice place <laughs> i think i would i would check that one out too if i had it to do over again
0: yeah <laughs> but what was your background before vital were you in cpg were you just interested in uh, you CPG space or you know what
2: were you just do? interested in
0: chickens or do you like eggs
1: a lot <laughs> i just couldn't get enough eggs in the morning <laughs> maybe i don't know wandering but not lost i didn't have a background in agriculture didn't really think a, a great deal about the food space i guess my journey i always knew i would peel off and kind of do something more for myself as opposed to being in a larger company and i guess in 2008 I had been at Motorola, which was a Fortune 50, you know, you're talking 40 plus billion in revenue, 150,000 employees when I joined. And that was amazing for a lot of reasons, learned so much, and it's it's a it was a great, in some senses, place to kind of come up and cut your teeth. But I always knew, because it's been in my family's blood, we've always just kind of done kind of our own thing, I suppose, and uh, finished my grad school up in Chicago, and we just wanted to be in Austin, and so, you know, we got down here mainly because we just loved the town and loved the the vibe and the energy that was here. And we also knew it was it was friendly for young business. And that certainly proved to be the case. What I really knew I needed to do differently was I needed to care about what I was doing when I popped out of bed in the morning. And in a big, massive company, it's easy to feel like it doesn't really matter if you do what your function in your cubicle is. I couldn't deal with that anymore. It was soul crushing.
0: Real quick, what what were you doing at Motorola?
1: Man, everything, because I would get bored. So I started out in <laughs> finance. I did audit. I, I got into like a risk management, kind of a strategy role for the CFO, traveling abroad a lot, which was super cool, especially before family and stuff. But then I got into supply chain for a couple of years. And then my last role there, I was Managing the Global Marketing Strategy for Mobile Devices. Wow. And that's uh, a fancy long title. <laughs> what, it, what it meant was that I was super frustrated because we could all see the smartphone was coming. This was, you know, iPhone launched in 08. And we just knew that the wrong people were driving there. We were over-engineering products and totally missing what the consumer really wanted. And a lot of us knew that, but weren't able to, to impact it due to, due to the culture of, that once great company, very unfortunately. So anyhow, that really kind of, I guess, teed me up to say enough of this, you know, I need to control my own destiny more and I need to care about what I'm doing and that, that I needed to be advancing something important in the world and I just didn't feel that was. And so getting into Austin, I had was part of another uh, a young venture, a kind of a, an international tourism play with some friends it was doing well but it wasn't going to stick scale quickly enough and that's when I like I said met Matt and Catherine and the farm they had started and and I guess the bones of that brand and we you know kind of formalized it and grew it from there and um, what I knew was it, it's it's kind of funny it was more of more of a heart decision than a head one I was that early consumer you know who was looking for something better and preferred organic and this was before gluten-free and all of these other merit badges you can throw on something, but just kind of being that consumer, I knew there was a place for it without having any sophisticated market research or anything. We, we just had a napkin and on the back of that. It showed that, Hey, we, you know, if we get a little slice of this, you know, if people are willing to pay and we found out very quickly they were. So anyhow, I, I wasn't a farmer, but I also wasn't, I guess, I don't deserve credit for much. Maybe I do for at least being humble enough to kind of ha- have had a really nice, secure, high-paying job and fancy degree from Kellogg and whatnot. But you know, you fast forward a couple of months and I'm out kicking around in the dust, you know, chasing chickens around with a fishing net, you know, uh, quite literally. I really catch catching chickens. The longer the handle on the net, the better, because they are fast. Oh. <laughs> oh yeah we went through a lot of a lot like of like a nets. skimmer that would have been smart yeah. were cheap, man. we were going to academy like twice a week to buy more nets it was oh like, gosh. Gosh. yeah there's so many stories but you know you got to be humble enough to go knock around in the dirt in 100 degrees and figure out what the hell does a chicken need when it lives outside, especially down here, and go to the farmer's market and schlep your eggs that you're really proud of. You, You can't really be above anything when you wanna be part of getting something off the ground. And yeah, it just always, from the beginning, felt really good to be in the food space because we can all relate to it. It's all, you know, in times of COVID, it's essential, right? If there's anything essential, it's this. And, you know, to be elevating that and improving really do believe the quality of people's lives and health and wellness and, you know, our consciousness too, depending on what you believe. I mean, nobody would feel there should be more suffering in the world, right? So how about we don't cram chickens into a, you know, let's cut off the front of their face and cram them into a cage with eight of their friends. That's not a good way to live and we can do better. And I think it's a cool time to be alive because there's a lot at our disposal that lets us make advancements in the world again from the ground up. And particularly in the food space, the barriers are low. Anybody can, you know, come up with a healthier version of something in their own kitchen and then take it to Wheatsville. Like that's a beautiful way to move through the world. And, you know, there's all kinds of rewards out there for us, but, you know, we're making the world better. I really believe that.
0: I like that. And I think there's something to be said about making a a business plan on a napkin. I feel like that's a recurring thing. A lot of great businesses
1: come from a napkin so maybe that's the goal (laughs) a good buddy of mine he's from zimbabwe but he's been living in london or outside of london for most of his life but he gave me a book called the beer mat entrepreneur and what they mean is like the little coaster that you know your pint sits on in the pub but great it is basically exactly about that and i suppose i've taken advantage of some of the highest forms of business education you know where i got to go to school and things and And bottom line, none of it's rocket science. There's formulas and, you know, fancy methodologies and models and whatnot. But yeah, it doesn't have to be super complicated. It certainly wasn't for us at Vital. The main thing you got to do is put something out there where people are going to really go for it on its own merits. If you're having to market too hard, y'all probably know this better than I do is, you know, to a degree, the product really needs to sell itself. Otherwise, it's going to be pushing uphill pretty hard. So anyway, it's... It's neat because we get to tinker around in that space in the food world, and and it's doesn't take years or millions of dollars to come up with something great and differentiated.
2: Yeah, well, and
1: drink drink more beer by all means. You'll be a better person.
2: (laughs) I mean, I love the humble aspect. I remember one thing at Vital where Matt O'Hare, you guys were having interviews, and some guy came in in a suit, and it was immediately he was like, no he did, didn't care oh, what the guy God. had to say it was just like no so i i mean true to the roots i mean true to the farming roots i appreciate that yeah like so the, enough know with the your audience <laughs> yeah, know <laughs> your audience that's important one takeaway from this know your audience um we so thought I, thought
1: I was going to be too high maintenance for us uh, uh, oh
2: you don't even remember <laughs> that what that was
1: about <laughs> i remember interviewing you i actually do
2: what oh, was Karen wearing? Like, no. overalls and, I don't know, or farmer? I had a piece of wheat come out on <laughs> <now>.
1: mouth.
2: <laughs> like,
1: spot on. <laughs> it wouldn't have been a bad move. I, I can't say I remember that. But I just remember you leaving, and then, you know, you, you remember who else was probably in the room. And we just kind of had a powwow after we probably gave you, I don't know, a dozen eggs and said, thanks for coming in. Uh, it a six-pack. Sorry.
2: <laughs> so, I already, I can tell what you... How you felt
1: about me on that? Times were tough. Maybe we were <laughs> sold out. Look at it that way. But yeah, we—I we, just remember looking around and everybody was like, "She's exactly what we need." And uh, of course, you were and helped really take our online presence and really the face of the brand. If you think about it, for probably most people anymore. I mean, I don't know so much about eggs. Just categories, you know, certain ones are more. That's probably a little less prone to. D to c you know exploration but anymore i mean you you have to really the front of your store is is online and that's the first exposure most people are going to get to whatever it is you're offering and yeah you're a big part of the reason we've been able to you know grow vital and get to where it has so
2: hi jason this isn't about me <laughs> that's very nice though
1: <laughs> Definitely not about me well like it
2: is that. i love so i personally we're friends and i don't even know how you ended up at exo so can you talk a little bit about your new venture exo protein
1: yeah so i'm a sucker for something that really is disruptive i suppose you know i so really was neck deep in vital kind of running the whole ball of wax for most of the you know early years of it and and then we started bringing on people who were you know just had a lot of, you know, potential to take the thing forward, probably in ways that I just couldn't have. And certainly I was also really tired and kind of worn out. It takes a lot out of you, especially when you don't have a lot of equity money behind you to go, you know, have some of the things that are nice to have when you're trying to scale quickly. Anyway, I took a bit of a break and thankfully it was things aligned for, for me to be able to do that. And, you know, I had missed an awful lot kind of family stuff. We have three kids by now and all of those came after vital. And so anyway, was able to just kind of decompress a little bit and decided, yeah, I definitely don't want to leave the food space. There's just too much good stuff going on and my heart is here. So I would work with kind of an advisory or consultative or mentor capacity, a bunch of brands across categories, really learned a ton. And I think hopefully had some nice impact uh, along the way. But I guess in that period, probably about four or five years ago, I got to know the founders of Aspire Food Group and they are, Canadian, but they had located the company here for the same reasons that many food companies want to be established here because of, you know, the network and other things. Anyhow, their purpose is to solve for, you know, all sorts of problems across, you know, the the global stage. The idea about having access to great quality protein in turbulent times, whether it's, you know, climate or economics or population or whatever, they had won a million bucks in a business competition that Bill Clinton handed them a check back in, I think 2013 to go explore, Hey, can we help feed the world with great quality protein and in a really rounded nutrition offering, uh, through insects. And they had been hard at work ever since working out the R and D and in all the manufacturing capability and in production, you know, this is new to the world in one sense, at least the way they've come up, across it in kind of a modular scalable very economically efficient way in a way that had never been done so basically they have achieved a great deal in a matter of i guess five short years they've done what probably took the poultry industry 50 to do and that's to you know bring the grow out cycle or the lifespan of a of a mature in their case cricket to you know maturity in basically 30 days down from 60 And so they'd made massive leaps forward from a a technological standpoint. And I knew them to be just amazing humans. That's something that I, you know, it really matters who you're doing something with as much as what what it is that you're actually pushing on. The people are everything. And I just had loads of respect for them just as humans and what, as well as what they were trying to accomplish in the world. And anyway, about this time last year, I kind of reconnected with Muhammad, one of the founding team, and basically was giving him some advice kind of how to approach the consumer space. And it just, long story short, sounded like a really interesting challenge that, that I, I don't know, wanted to put more time into. So that evolved into me coming on to the Aspire Food Group team as the chief growth officer to basically try to figure out that really the sales piece, but the consumer piece you know it's one thing to produce all this stuff and they've you know we're the leaders in the clubhouse globally and how to do that at scale with great economics that get it down to where it can compete with almost anything you know and as a protein ingredient but the question still remains and it, it sounded like a fun one to me to try to figure out well how do you you know convince the western consumer to go for this stuff because there's obviously that stigma there and the thing is there's just tons of really amazing reasons why it does make sense and and i wanted to think about really the marketing puzzle that that presented and that's what i've been doing for nine or ten months now uh, with our EXO brand and we've done a ton of very deep primary consumer insights work that we now kind of have in the hopper as well as our experience of of selling the EXO line for years now and we're kind of in this innovation and product development phase where, you know, we're not out here saying this is going to be a hundred million dollar market in two years. I don't think it's there yet, but, you know, we're trying to be thoughtful about how we can position and then present this in formats and, you know, in in a format and brand that maybe make the most sense and can maximize on what we understand the TAM to be, as well as selling it into the pet food market where it's, that's not going to be nearly as much of a challenge and we've already kind Of done a good job with that, so yeah, um, yeah, it's a fun one, a fun one, and I know it's a little out there still for some, but we're gonna get you, you know, you're gonna come around <laughs> to it, just just a matter of I like time. Tastes it.
0: like, yeah, a and we'll burn that, yeah, for people who maybe don't know what exoprotein is, it's cricket protein. I think y'all have crisps, you have flour, and bars, is that right? And now you're in that food space,
1: yeah. The, is a good synopsis. We recently discontinued the crispy line, though, which was the actual whole cricket. Yeah, Yeah, it was, it was not because people didn't like it. Actually, it was very kind of problematic from a supply chain and production standpoint. And this is one of those um, choices you make when you need to focus. And we needed to focus on stuff that we can just make with our powder or flour, which is just a kind of a roasted and ground up. It looks like you know, white flour or protein powder. And we're not really limited as to how that can get applied. And so, yeah, but we have the Exo line of bars. There's protein and energy bars, and they're relatively really high in protein, and it's a complete protein. It's kind of the same protein profile in terms of the full amino stack, all nine of the essentials, as you get in beef or pork or, uh, you know, other kind of livestock-based proteins. But it's much, much lighter on the environment and our resources. And so less that it requires as inputs, you know, to to make a pound of that. And it's also a lot less, uh, you know, harmful gases and things that are the result of the production. And so, you know, it's kind of the environmental footprint of plants with the nutrition of animals. That's one way to look at it. And we're just trying to figure out what really we should best go do with that in a way that you know, navigates that stigma and addresses it and educates. And there's going to be a lot, I think, that we learned on the vital journey that will come to bear here, but no final answers yet, but just telling you, telling you right here, remember this, it's coming, it will be a thing, you know, it is a viable, very, it's the most responsible form of protein we can take in. And, you know, our job is to make that, I guess, in the way that we, kind of in the way that we define pasture raised and animal welfare and, you know, quality in that part of the store, this is a viable option that we need to take seriously you know for ourselves as well as the earth
0: yeah and i'll tell you i mean if you just go down to waco's hollywood movie theater outside there's a ton of crickets that i'm sure go harvest um, you could grab
1: yeah send me an address
0: okay (laughs) if
1: you go to baylor how do you even know that
0: (laughs) i'm from waco okay yeah (laughs) Yeah,
1: well, I mean... we got a pickup, we could head up there and... You know, oh, they would love for
0: out.
1: y'all to swing by. We'll, we'll get our nets from the first Vital Farm and... <laughs> I know, there's a lot of similarities, yeah,
0: between Exo and Vital, it seems like. <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean, I kind of just have one more question. I just, you talked a little bit about the barrier, like I'm sure there's a big barrier to entry for consumers, especially Western consumers. I'm sure you know taking into like the flour maybe help but what in other ways what other ways have you solved that challenge for someone to go try a cricket
1: (laughs) well I guess one response is we don't think we fully have yet but one thing that you know kind of across food is that it has to be delicious so taste is kind of the table stakes and you know we've been we've had some formulas that we had inherited for the bar line and we've been tinkering with those quite a bit to improve the eating experience and the flavor as well as you know the nutritionals and the macros and things we have a protein you know our protein line is going to be 14 grams of protein and only three grams of sugar so you get into the space where that's appealing to people on all sorts of you know low carb diets
0: what does the calorie look like for that calorie count
1: it's under 200 so it's I'm telling you, it's quite potent nutritionally. It's
0: not going to hurt your tummy like whey protein and no all that fact, area.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, so cricket powder is prebiotic in here. So it's actually really great for digestion and gut health. And, and the fiber content is something that's kind of a bonus. We're actually getting to be de- kind of deficient across the board as, as a nation, I think. With respect to fiber a lot of people are anyway in the way you know similar to like vitamin d and some other things just due to the way we eat anymore so there's a fiber a prebiotic content there's you know more iron than spinach and crate b12 and omega-3s and all this stuff it feels not dissimilar to the early vital farms days when we had all this crap to say we need to distill it down in the most kind of a cogent way and it's you know digestible but mm-hmm. anyway yeah, it has to taste great. It has to be in a format that is not off-putting. It, it also, the education obviously is gonna be central. To you know, why the hell should I do that? We, we kind of think of insects in a certain way. And we're actually kind of unique on the global stage yeah, or compared to many other cultures across the globe for whom this is already a just a very natural food source. Um, you know, it's on the planet here with us and you don't have to be Naked and afraid to to take advantage of uh, some humble but very powerful protein here and yeah don't have all the answers yet but that's kind of the core of the job and then you know we're also standing up all of the other stuff you need just as a company to go do things well in the CPG space both grocery and D2C we're primarily D2C now but you know the bars have been in HEB for almost a year and a half now about a third of the HEBs out there are going to have our protein bars and, and energy uh, as of this month, actually. So
2: Congratulations!
1: Yeah, you know, H-E-B, awesome. HEB, it's uh, H-E-B. there's a Texas connection there, but they deserve a lot of credit. They're kind of a mainstream grocer, but they're way better. than. I mean, they're progressive and very forward-thinking, and we just had an amazing call that was so helpful with our buyer just yesterday. You know, we were having some real talk you know like hey it would be great if your economics were a little bit better you know about the purpose but you need to provide us you know the dollars and cents and so it's a good thing we've been working to go improve you know our supply chain and how we manufacture and our cost structure so that we can have great answers to those questions when they come because you can be real special but you know a slot on a grocery shelf is kind of priceless for, for that retailer and so really this comes full circle if you think of a stakeholder model or a consciously capitalistic way of moving through all this, you know, it has to be good for everybody, whether it's a farmer, an animal, the consumer, you know, your HEV buyer, he needs to look good or she, it just in our case, it's a he, but they need to, you gotta be careful Day. Yeah, that's true. It has to benefit everyone to be viable or be viable. Mm-hmm. Think about that.
2: I mean, we're huge HEB fans Love and H-E-B. stakeholder model fans. Think, yeah. So, well, thanks, Jason, yeah, for joining it us. It was so nice
1: to hear your expertise. And do you want to tell everybody
2: where you can find EXO? Well, we're
1: besides HEB, D 2 C, but you know, all your usual online channels, be they our website or Amazon. And we're in about a thirty HEBs today. We're in every cost-plus world market that there is. They've been a great partner as well. It's actually a really great account that is kind of non-typical, but it's a really great one. Um, cool. Yeah, a lot of other mom-and-pops and stuff, but we're, we're working to drive our grocery presence and get that door count up, and we've been doing a lot of work, you know, in the, in the online space too to, you know, better target folks and, and to be able to cut everybody good deals for, for trying what we've got, so hope everybody does.
0: Yep, and they are delicious, so don't let the crickets <laughs> scare you. Yeah.
1: Yeah, get over it, it's just food.
0: Get over it already, shoot. <laughs> That's well.
1: probably not a good tagline.
0: Get, get over, over it, it already.
2: <laughs> yeah, no. you don't need to pay us for no. that. That's free advice.
1: <laughs> well, hey y'all, congratulations on Who and I? And I'm, I know for a fact from just being out there in the space that y'all are kicking tail out there and it's so cool to see, you know, you can stand up food brands, you can also stand up companies like what you've done and you're to be commended for that you're providing a great value and it's doing well by y'all as well and yeah it's, it's a great space but congratulations on your success there at umai and keep doing what you're doing it's going to be fun to see how y'all track as well you. Yeah, nice i mean <laughs> hey you get a lot of credit for starting this so all those lunches yeah.
0: we owe you lunch again too probably <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> this is all over you, with you get
1: arrested for going to a, a restaurant <laughs>
0: Probably, I know.
2: We're sitting very close to each other right now, so.
1: Yeah, I may call the authorities. Stay
0: safe, stay safe out
1: there. Headset, so.
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: we disinfected it though, so we're clean. Thank you all for having me, I sure appreciate it. Thank you. uh, Yeah, enjoyed it, and congrats.
2: Thanks, Jason. We'll talk to you soon. Umai Social Circle is a CPG agency-driven podcast based out of Austin, Texas. We're excited to share more behind-the-scene insights, chats with industry leaders, and whatever else we learn along the way. Follow us on Instagram at umaimarketing or check out our website, umaimarketing.com. Catch you back here soon.